Pursued by cannibalistic swamp dwellers, our party races through the Gromengast wetlands. Their destination? Anti-Rudwilla's domain. They carry with them their fallen comrade Calda, who hovers at the gates of death. And unbeknownst to them, as they race towards Anti-Rudwilla's safety, Calda is in another race all his own, a race against the forces of death that are attempting to prevent him from returning to the land of the living. Spoiler alert, he doesn't make it. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. Our session began in the swamps with the party discovering that Calda was dead. He's not unconscious. He's not capable of responding to healing magic. There's no pulse. He's not breathing. And the first decision is, do they take the body with them or do they leave Calda's body there in the swamp? Now, the players themselves are aware that Calda is in the land of death. At the same time, they are noticing the Grommen, which are the, the humans that reside in this swamp. And specifically, Mir realizes that the this particular set of Grommen are subversive, that they're dangerous, they're opposed to anti-Rudwilla, and they're also cannibalistic. So the party decides that they're not going to leave their friend there to be eaten by these cannibals. Bren, the half-orc fighter, hefts Calda over his shoulder, and they make a run for it. Simultaneously, Calda is in the the land of death. What I do in the scene is I, I say, we're not picking it up exactly where it had, it had left off for Calda, where he was in a communication of sorts with his master, Riziki, or at least the image of his old master, Riziki. We're picking it up after that conversation has happened, and I explain it like this. That conversation has information that's highly valuable, but you only have access to it if you survive, meaning if you get out of the land of, of death, if you return to the land of the living. What we're going to do is we're going to run through the battle. If you survive, we're going to flash back to the conversation. This way, if you don't survive, you don't have the information. We begin at this stage with Calda falling down through the mists of the spirit realm and landing on the deck of the Gregopos. Now, the Gregopos is Captain Castagari's ship, which was destroyed by the Kraken. On the ship, this version of it, at least in the Land of Spirit, there's no central mast. It's replaced by this huge tree. And the ship itself is, quote-unquote, manned by the party. So there's a spiritual manifestation of the party, and I convey to Calda that he's aware that the Lord of Light, which is the god, one of the gods that is connected to Voss, our sorcerer, and goes by many names, Pelor being the D&D name, but also Ra and, and any other sun god. The Lord of Light has given Calda a boon in that he's connected him spiritually to his friends, and so these manifestations are there to help him. Now, this is a little bit of the Dungeon Master realizing that a second-level wizard would be completely outmatched by the intensity of the combat encounter that's about to happen, and so I needed to give the wizard 
some means to have a chance in hell. Additionally, there are two imps, Snick and Stitch, who are perched on the, the, the rear deck of the ship where Calda is and where the rudder exists and where Mir is steering. And this mirrors what's happening in the real world. In the real world, Mir is leading the party, aka steering them through the swamps in an attempt to get to Rudwilla's domain and safety in the land of the dead. The party is on board the ship mostly spiritually, but called up with with Mir again steering that ship. And these two scenes play out simultaneously to each other. I do this mechanically so that no players are just sitting there for the almost two hours it took to run through this doing nothing, and that there's actual connection between what's happening in both worlds. So as the scene commences, whenever uh, a character on the deck of the spirit ship is destroyed by a shadow demon, the character in the real world has to make a save versus a bane spell. And they have to continue making that save until this whole ordeal is over, because this portion of their life essence has been removed from them to participate in the battle in the spirit realm and help called up. The Grommen are pursuing the party through the swamps, and every time they are turning them from their course or slowing them down, that's also having an impact in Calda's realm. So the faster the party can get to Rudwilla's domain, the faster Calda can be saved, and vice versa. As I explained, uh, the, the more of them that can survive on the ship, the safer it will be for them in the swamp because they won't have the Bane spell cast on them. And what we have is a whole series of back and forths where the party gets caught and has to fight some Grommen in the swamp, or Calda has to try to save certain members of the party on the deck of the ship with their spells. It's a fairly dynamic, uh, intense encounter, and in the end, the things seem to be going pretty well. Two of the party members have been removed from the deck of the ship, and Calda makes a decision to, to go to the lower deck in an attempt to, to do battle with the shadow demons. He gets in close enough that one of them is able to land a hit on him, and it's at that point that we discover that against these kind of foes, it's going to be a one-hit, one-kill. And Calda takes an enormous amount of damage from one singular blow, more than enough to blow through his double hit points and kill him outright. There's no death saving throws because this is already the land of the of the dead. He had failed his death saving throw in the last session that got him here in the first place, and Calda is no more. From there, the what happens is the 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 party reaches Rudwilla's domain, and they they meet a different sect of Grauman, a more friendly sect of Grauman, the Grauman that Mir has grown up with. The area where Rudwilla sort of holds court, if you will, is basically a swamp community. The cottages are all, all up on raised platforms, and there are these these awakened trees, and this comes from reading up on the area effects of a hag's lair that when a when a hag is present some of the trees can become awakened and actually work to defend their camp and the party moving through the swamp mirror had used some of those awakened trees to protect the party getting here but what they find within the camp I, I thought it would be kind of interesting to have the trees have more of a utility and a function within the community so that they can move from cottage to cottage using the vines as sort of a transport system and you know 
point out that it's a little disconcerting because they saw the trees tear Grumman to pieces out in the, the greater swamp when they were being pursued by the cannibals. But here, they see that the trees are very gentle and caring and, and serve basically a, a, a pedestrian function within the, the confines of the safety of Rudwilla's domain. The party is able to take uh, a much needed rest. They're able to recover somewhat and deal with the loss of their compatriot. They have some discussion over what they can take, what they need to return to his family, and then also what to do with the body. There's a point at which there's a suggestion that they need to return the entire body to his family all the way in Raven S. But of course, that's highly impractical. And so it is decided that they're going to return like a signet ring they take. And there's all these these different things that they they plan on returning to his family, at least when when they're able to get back there. But of course, the main thing here is meeting Auntie Rudwilla, who the party knows is a hag, but she's supposed to be friendly. And so the whole rest of the session was predominantly the meeting with Auntie Rudwilla. And she is a, a very tall human-looking figure at this point. That's the way she appears. Mir has warned them to be extremely polite. And I think the, the party's just very, very wary of, of dealing with her because none of them really wants to get into a situation where they're going to offend a hag in her domain. But as Bruce points out, he's far less concerned about this being a problem, meaning the party being accidentally rude, since Calda's not with them. Of course, Calda was the character most likely to be problematic. Everyone else is extremely deferential. They're just trying to, to get the aid that they need to get from her. She's as creepy as she can possibly be. She asks intense questions. She seems to have these herky-jerky movements about her that are almost supernatural at times. She seems to actually, uh, you blink and she moves so fast that she's behind you. And then she's offering them something to drink, which it would be rude if they didn't. Uh, Voss doesn't actually drink. She just lets it touch her lips. The others drink, and there's no ill effects. Because she has a plan for them. She wants them to remove her sister, Agoramaya, from, from play. She's sending them to go after her. And now that Calda is dead, there's also the question of will the party continue to pursue the Balnexicon? So the whole reason for them coming to the swamp and heading to where they're heading was because Calda was in pursuit of this ancient tome. It's why he came to Semyana, why he came to Outpost 9. It's the core motivation. And without Calda, that motivation kind of goes away. But Auntie Rudwilla is also interested in getting her hands on the Balnexicon, and she's willing to pay for it. Oddly enough, they never negotiated price. I think everyone was so creeped out by her that they weren't going to get into that with her. And at the same time, she gifted all of them with fairly potent magic items. So in a weird way, she has already paid them in advance. But the question becomes, are, are these somewhat cursed items? They all seem to have significant benefits. For Bren, the half-orc, she gives him a battle axe, a magical battle axe, that is uh, essentially plus one, plus two versus humans because it's called king killer and it used to be wielded by an orc chieftain whose sole purpose in life was to to kill human leaders in the Aetherian realm for constantine rudwilla gives him a chain shirt that is elven chain and drow 
which means it's incredibly thin, plus one chain shirt that gives him advantage on stealth checks when he is in dim or darker light. For Mir, she gives him a set of bracers that were worn by a, uh, a Grauman chieftain who actually developed these specifically to, uh, to allow him to kill hags is kind of interesting. So what it allows him to do is once a day, it allows him to cast false life on himself, but also while uh, wearing the bracers, any melee weapon attack he makes does extra damage to uh, to any hags. So this could be a, a weapon, obviously, against Agoramaya, but it also shows the trust because it could be a weapon against Anti-Rudwilla. And finally, for, for Voss, she essentially gets a ring of spell storing that has a number of spells that Rudwilla has already placed in there, and I specifically made the most potent spell within it, basically, is summon lesser demons. The party now ha each uh, has some fairly potent magic items. And that's pretty much where we ended it. The party has uh, reached the safety of the Antis domain. They have magic items that are going to help them. They have a, a new motivation for going after the Balnexicon. If they return it to Auntie Rudwilla, she'll pay them handsomely for it. The key challenge ahead of them now is the Rootlands, which is this central section within Semyana within old Etheria. And it is a, it's mostly farm country, but it is policed by these extremely disciplined um, horse lords who hold to extremes of, of law and who are on high alert because they believe that they're in danger of being invaded by the faithful of Semyana. So a party of strange looking folk are certainly going to have a hard time if they get stopped by any of these patrols in making their way through the countryside. So the decision is made that they're going to forge letters of transit. To do that, they need to go to a town that sits on the edge of the swamp and the hills just to the north of there called Deadfall. And it's there where they'll meet the new character to replace Calda. And that's pretty much the, the decision to go there is pretty much where the session ended. So what worked, what didn't work, and what lessons were learned? The chase through the swamp employed uh, a hex map, or I, I used a, a hex map at 100-foot scale. I've done this before at the very beginning of the campaign. Uh, it's a, a software program called HexKit, which I, I highly recommend. Uh, not that expensive and just makes these gorgeous maps. I gave the druid character Mir, played by Bruce, uh, a much broader range of sight to uh, stand in for his knowledge of the area so he could see many, many, many hexes all around him to know what the terrain would be comprised of and to see where opponents were, whereas everyone else was sort of constrained to just a couple of hexes. And used this as a, you know, telling them, hey, you've got Generally, you've got two hexes of movement on any quote-unquote turn. Uh, certain hexes, if they have, if the hex has a very dense foliage in it, it would count as two hexes, that type of a thing. Additionally, you know, through his knowledge checks and everyone's knowledge checks, they would get certain information, like to know, hey, there's a whole bunch of crocodiles in this area, or this is where the awakened trees can be found. And it just created this interesting strategic challenge for for the for the party it essentially used the skill challenge concept from fourth edition it worked 
seemed to work really well. And uh, I got some some nice feedback, certainly from Bruce following the, the session. So I, I'd, I'd have to say that that certainly worked. I think connecting the scenes, while not perfect, I think that worked because, again, didn't have anybody sitting on the sidelines. And, of course, I, I ran them in parallel and I connect them mechanically so that there were things going on. It was a little bit clunky because of the way things kind of shook out. And I think it's sort of like a what didn't work within a what worked. I think it would have been better if everyone was strictly aware of the connection between the two realms. I think they started to suss it out as the the scenes rolled forward, but it wasn't crystal clear to everyone in the moment. In terms of what didn't work and some lessons learned, I have to question if the the rules I've set up around uh, death saves and the land of death and all that stuff is fun for the players. When I was making notes to to put together this audio journal, I originally wrote, is it fair? But I crossed that out and wrote fun because it's not fair and it's not intended to be fair. Sort of upfront saying it's kind of reminds me of the grinder rules that the, uh, the tomb of annihilation, uh, system utilizes, except it's much, much worse, right? You only get one save and that save determines if you live or die. But then I say, if you die, you have to face this incredibly tough challenge in the land of death. I think in this particular case, because Calda just does not have a lot of hit points, he, he has 10 hit points and they get doubled when you're in the land of death for this challenge, so you have 20. But the things you're facing can easily do 20 points of damage in a hit. And so I tried to construct it so he had a fighting chance, but in the end, by moving into melee combat with these things, he put himself in a bad spot and they got a hit on him and that was the end of that. And character's gone. I don't question whether or not this is fair. It's not. The question is whether or not this is fun. And it's this is a tough one for me to answer. You try to say, well, if I was a player in this game, and I knew ahead of time that these this was the way the game was working, because of course I've let everyone know that, the question that I must ask as a good DM is, is this fun? And I honestly don't know the answer. I don't know if, if I had created a character that I was really enjoying, if one death saving throw and then you get to go into an, a nearly impossible fight, if that's fun. I think the first time we did this with Bruce and Mir, it worked really well. Because he survived. And he survived, I think, largely on Bruce's tactical acumen. Whereas the character of Calda, which is not to say that uh, Grayson does not have tactical acumen, but he's, he's not as experienced a player as Bruce is. But he also tends to play severely suboptimal. You know, the whole reason he got bitten by the, the giant crocodile was because he, he made on purpose a suboptimal decision because that's what the character would do. And I think there was a lot of that happening on board the ship as well. He had the opportunity to tap in. The imps kept talking to him, trying to get him to partner with them because they would have been able to help him. They were another boon. Now, plot-wise, then, he would have had access to one of them as a familiar, and um, additionally, there would have been extra drama, because he would have been caught between the Lord of Light and Semyana, the Lord of Darkness. But he didn't take it, because he's a good aligned character, and he refused. And so, again, making choices that are, are not about um, winning, 
but about actually playing your character. And that's a good thing, right? That's that's what we want as uh, as game masters and as role players. That's the stuff that really is, is pretty awesome when you have a player that does that. So massive kudos. But I think this is a situation that is very unforgiving and suboptimal choices in play are going to result in your death. And so it becomes kind of a, an interesting conundrum because it's not supporting the kind of play that I necessarily want to support. I want players to be able to do the things they think their character would do. But at the same time, I did want it to be serious. So I, I think when you come to a point where a player character dies final death in your game, you should really pick apart what has happened, the choices you've made that allowed that to happen, the choices they made that allowed that to happen, and, and don't take it for granted that you have to interrogate it a little bit and determine, was this fun? It was fair in that these were the rules I set up ahead of time. Not balanced, though. But was it fun? Is it fun to think that your character could die like this? Um, and I'm, I, I'm still not 100% sure. I think... At some point, I'm going to have to ask the players for their opinion on that. Grayson took the death of Calda pretty well. I think he was disappointed he didn't want his character to die. But of course, like any any D&D player, the prospect of making a new character is always pretty exciting. And so we've already moved down that path. So I, I, I think it's all good. I don't think the campaign's really been damaged by this. The, the echoes of Calda's impact on the story are, are still... Uh, resonating because they're going to be using his signet ring so that Voss can impersonate a noble and have uh, transit papers and, and I think that'll be kind of cool. So we had our first final uh, character death of the, the campaign, uh, many sessions into it, but just on the cusp of third level, everyone has since now leveled up. The, the players are now at the point where I think they're they're no longer completely squishy. I think third level is a key threshold. And from here, there's a very focused mission. And I kind of think that the death of Calda has given everybody this, this sort of renewed focus and have had a number of different conversations about what's going to happen in the, the coming session. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing, throwing us a review, or sharing with your other gamer friends. You can follow me on Twitter at AnatomyCamp. Thanks for listening.